This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal in all of this is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Now, you're about to hear a session from the Bonhoeffer Project, and one of the major emphases in disciple-making from the Bonhoeffer Project is helping you hone your understanding of the gospel that Jesus preached so that you can better follow Jesus and make disciples of Jesus in light of the gospel. They are clear-minded about false gospels out there and how those false beliefs affect disciple-making efforts. Their message is, get your gospel right before you're able to rightly make disciples. That's how they approach discipleship in general. Well, they've given discipleship.org a primer to the book that the founder of the Bonhoeffer Project, Bill Hull, wrote. It's called The Discipleship Gospel, and he wrote it with Ben Sobels. And by the way, it's a discipleship.org book, so you can download the free primer to this book at discipleship.org slash ebooks and search for The Discipleship Gospel Primer by Bill Hull and Ben Sobels. Today, we're featuring an episode from the Bonhoeffer Project and their track at the National Disciple-Making Forum called Disciple-Making Gaps. The episode is called The Gospel Gap, featuring Bill Hull and the team. Here you go. Well, good afternoon. I guess technically it is. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad you're here. Uh, This is the Bonhoeffer Project track, and if you're looking for it, then you found it very nicely. Thank you. Now, one of the first things that Uh, Cindy Perkins, and we have to do whatever Cindy Perkins asks us to do. She's director of operations for the Bonhoeffer Project, is fill this card out. And if you'll fill this card out, and then uh, we're going to hand them to the aisles this way? Okay. If you don't have a card, raise your hand. All right. And then we'll move it across. Move them across this direction as soon as you're finished. And then we're going to take those, and there will be a drawing for some free materials toward the end of the session, all right? And how long does this session last, just so I know for sure? I didn't check the notes. One hour. All right. Thank you. Good. It's always good to know how much time you have. Well, a few years ago... When uh, someone my age should be thinking about slowing down, in fact, I was. And I thought maybe the best thing for me to do would just be in this uh, fourth quarter of my life. And then somebody suggested to me I wasn't in the fourth quarter. I was in sudden death overtime. So I said, all right, what do I want to do? I want to get a group of people, uh, you leaders, around a table and spend a year with them. Uh, and do some substantial thinking through what it really means to be a disciple maker, to turn leaders, because leaders uh, are in abundance. And there is a lot of work being done on leadership. Uh, some people believe that you can be made a leader. Other people believe that you believe that you are either born a leader or you're not born a leader. Uh, the truth is, a little bit of both, and there is a, a gifting issue in here as well, a wiring issue if you were talking in the secular community. But in the sense that we take leaders, people who have followers, 
and they would then get around a table and I could spend time with them over a year, getting to know them, working with them, teaching them what I know, what I really found valuable in my life. And then uh, that hopefully would help them in leading the people they lead. But I'm really interested and focused on making disciples. And that, so I wanted to start with the gospel, because it seems to me that most conversations about the, the Great Commission, and, uh, and as I've traveled the world, one of the things that I have done in my teaching as my pastoral life as well is that really hardly anyone who had any knowledge of the Bible would argue against the Great Commission. It's just the kind of the different ways that people explained the Great Commission. And that some people would just talk about preaching the gospel to every creature. Well, that's a, that's a part of it. But not so many people back in the 1970s and the late, the mid-70s when I became a pastor that were talking about it or the church understood what Make Disciples was all about. But I'd come out of Crew, which is Campus Crusade for Christ in those days. Athletes in Action was where I really began with them as a basketball player. But one of the things that I, I learned I suppose, without being confused by the church. And, you know, that's what the church is really good at, is confusing people and developing a lot of ambiguity about the clarity of our mission. So I, I understood over years as I was pastoring and learning how to pastor, learning how to relate to people, that uh, there needed to be some clarity, that ambiguity was really the standard. If you don't believe that, just ask people what a disciple is. Ask people, uh, they'll say things like, oh, a disciple loves Jesus. Uh-huh. A disciple follows Jesus. Yeah. A disciple lives and loves like Jesus. Uh-huh. Now, these are all correct answers, but it's not enough to make a disciple with. And so the most of the people who discuss it, and back in crew even, uh, we would always say, well, let's just make disciples. Let's fulfill the Great Commission. And uh, hold on a second. I'm not quite strong enough to pull that off. Thank you. Thank you. There was a day. All right. When I could pull the lid off a thing like this all by myself without assistance. All right. Now, the uh, so most people start like the 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 conversation with, uh, okay, let's uh, make disciples. And then uh, let's, let's get a plan and let's get some materials. Let's get a model. In fact, we'll go to this particular church that uh, they're really doing a great job. Uh, and, and we'll get to that church and we'll we'll just find out if they have a, a, a home kit, you know, where, where I can take it home with me and just implement this in my congregation. Well, the problem with best practices, we call it, is that those are the best practices for whoever that person is in their context with their people and their understanding and background and opportunity. But it's not the best practice necessarily for you. 
And so there is no just cookie-cutter answer to all of this. But the conversation would begin here, and then they would say a plan and all this, and then they start going and creating their program. And it's almost always guaranteed to fail. It's almost always guaranteed to just kind of die a natural death and diffuse into the common tissues of the culture of that religious organization. That's normally what happens. And so when I, I didn't want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. Is there an eraser on the other side? Okay, very good. Uh, I'm on the other side now, and I don't see an eraser. Does anybody uh, have an eraser with them? Oh, oh, it's over here. Oh, thank you, Ben. That's what younger people are for. It was stuck at the top there. Okay, so now we're going to erase. And this is not what I wanted to do. Whoops, this is going somewhere. It needs brakes. Okay. Is this going to stick? There we go. All right. So <laughs> I'm a mechanical genius, as you can tell. So I thought what we want to do is really start here with, uh, you know, there's, we got three boxes here. And, and people say, well, you know, what do you do if you really want to make disciples? Well, the first thing is, why do you make disciples? Well, the reason we make disciples is the gospel. And what I was saying earlier about crew and uh, it wasn't just them, it was everyone, essentially, because everybody assumed we knew the gospel. And we had a, we had a little deal called the four laws, okay? So everybody knew that's the gospel, so nobody really discussed what the gospel was because we all knew what the gospel was, so you don't really need to have that conversation. Well, my conclusion now is that I'm not going to call it a mistake because I'm not that arrogant. Well, I hope I'm not that arrogant um, because God used the four spiritual laws to see millions and millions of people come to Christ. So I'm not going to criticize it in that way. But from a theological point of view, uh, this needed, what happened was that Everybody in the United States, the gospel Americana was essentially this. We take this word salvation, and we would divide it into conversion and discipleship. So conversion was this part, which is about getting your sins forgiven. and going to heaven. But there's a problem with this. Because what happens if you divide conversion from discipleship, you make discipleship optional. And so what, example, what happens then is that when discipleship becomes optional and not necessary or part of what it means to be saved, when disciple-making or discipleship or being involved in the, the mission of God is an optional, an option you can take up on your contract, then what happens is that many people who have prayed a prayer, who are a church member, who have been baptized, 
They have learned, and we've taught them very effectively, that you can become a Christian and not follow Jesus. And so what happens is that pastors and leaders spend most of their pastoral life trying to convince people to take up the option on their contract. That's what we end up doing. And so what we try to do to address this problem, and there's so much that I can't say that there isn't time to really say, uh, and that's, I suppose, why we write books, why we have the process, but what we do is we turn leaders into disciple makers, and the reason we do it, we start with why. Why? And so we believe that all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. All right? So, I mean... I think most of us in this room would say, all who are called to salvation, first of all, that the reason we're in this room is because we're, we were all called to salvation, and we were gloriously saved. But the next thing is, all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. And I think that, the, again, the most, I think the majority of people would agree with that, that we're called to discipleship, but we would say, eh, you know, but it's not necessary. I mean, just ask around your church. Uh, when you ask around the church something like this, uh, do you think in being involved in discipleship is necessary for salvation? And I think you'll get the answer, no. No. And no again. Uh, maybe you could ask it differently. Uh, it is... Do, do true Christians follow Jesus? And maybe the answer you would get is, well, some do and some don't. But it seems like only in Christianity can you have a belief system that says you can buy into something that God is the God of the universe and he interrupted all of this what called creation by, with, through the incarnation and he gave himself totally to us and then it's okay to just grab onto that, that commodity called salvation, and then actually not really do anything with it, it's okay. And we've even programmed our churches so that we have departments, we have uh, accommodations for all of these people who have said, well, it, I'm a Christian, but I really don't have to follow Jesus. And so the we have to start with what the gospel is because we believe that a basic thesis is that all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship, no exceptions, no excuses. Now that's when we start dividing up this room. It's because I think some of you think there are exceptions. Some of you think there are valid excuses. We don't. Now, there's a lot to say, a lot to say about what we don't mean by what we say, we definitely say, mean, you know, salvation is by grace alone. There's no doubt that we believe that. But to me, there's no difference between saying that and saying salvation is by discipleship alone. To me, that's the same thing. Because if you, because really the only operative word, the most important thing Jesus said, and the most operative, I guess, invitation that Jesus made is follow me. And the way you know you are for real is are you following him? So we start off with why. 
What is the gospel? Because the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make. So the next thing is disciple. And that's the, the what. What is a disciple? And again, there's lots of, lots of ways to define it, but ambiguity is your enemy. Because you, specificity is your friend when it comes to this, because if you can't define a disciple specifically enough so that you'll know if you actually made one, your definition is not good enough. So you have to ask yourself, what are the characteristics of a disciple? And then, not only that, there's a question that comes after that. How am I going to create that in people? For, let me just give you a simple example. Uh, a characteristic of a disciple is that they're in communication with God through the word and prayer. At least that's the modern 20th or 21st century to definition of kind of a basic part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, so how do you teach people to be in conversation with God through the word and prayer? Well, maybe you're going to have to have a group. You're going to have to have accountability because you can't make disciples without accountability, and you can't have accountability without some structure. It just isn't possible. So when you say, what? A disciple. So you have a definition that's clear enough that if you, you, you can actually make them, when uh, Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, it's pretty, you know, the interesting thing about that whole conversation is that they didn't raise their hand. Now, the reason that oftentimes uh, I've been involved in groups of clergy, uh, in groups of church leaders, groups similar to this, and you talk about disciple-making, discipleship, and somebody says, what do you mean by that? Not one of these 11 men on the mountain with Jesus said, hey, by the way, what do you mean by that make disciples thing? Why not? They knew exactly what it meant to make disciples. Why? Because he'd been with them for three years. That's why. They didn't have any questions about that. Yeah, they were shaking in their shoes. They were really upset that he was leaving. Uh, they were against that totally. Uh, I think the vote was 11 to 0. Maybe Jesus got a vote. Uh, maybe 11 to 1. But, uh, so, but he told them, you're going to make disciples. And if you're going to make disciples of every nation, of all people groups, you're going to have to make new disciples, right? And you're going to have to make more disciples. In fact, many more new disciples who are obedient and who also multiply. You're going to have to do, make all those things. So the next time you have a church leadership meeting or a group meeting of your ministry, just sit down with them and say, okay, let's just start here and we'll reverse engineer this passage and we'll see how we're doing. Do we have any new disciples? Do we have many new disciples? Do we have many new mature disciples, multiplying disciples? And so just start working through that. And if the answer is no, then the question is, why not? How do we fix it? And then finally, the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make, which, of course, need, then your plan needs to be in alignment with that. And that's the how. Now, this is where, you know, 99% of people start here. How? Because they figure they got this wired. But I would suggest to you that about 
90% of the body of Christ has not dealt with this. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make disciples. It doesn't mean that Christ isn't on his throne. It doesn't mean that God isn't going to be sovereign in his church. It doesn't mean any of that. It just does mean, however, that if you would like to be as effective and have as meaningful reproduction ministry as possible, then you need to think through all this. And it takes time to learn and relearn because we're deconstructing you. You know, this, you're deconstructing your gospel, you're deconstructing disciple, you're deconstructing your whole life because this deals with your habits. This deals with your heart. And this deals with your mind. M-I-N-D. <laughs> there we go. Now, uh, so, I think that what we have found is that a lot of people, the reason they're not making disciples is that they're distracted. Another reason is you just never get around to it. I remember Dallas Willard saying that the problem with the church is it makes it really hard for you to think about making disciples. And that's quite a statement, isn't it? But I think those of us involved really know that often that can be true. It can be quite challenging. Now, there, um, in, in our books and materials, we talk about the gospel Americana. We talk about the various gospels. And so the gospel you uh, believe in determines the disciple you make. So if you have a prosperity gospel, well, guess what you'll get? Now, all churches make disciples. Every church in America is making disciples. But, but uh, what kind of disciples? That's a different question. Sometimes really bad disciples. Uh, people who pervert different ideas, disciples. But the, so you start off with, uh, you have the prosperity gospel, you can have the gospel of the left, the gospel of the right, you can have the consumeristic gospel, I mentioned the forgiveness only gospel. Now also we, we have something we call, you know, one of the time, things, one time Ben Sobels and I, uh, one of my colleagues, Ben, uh, is a pastor in, Salinas, California, slash Monterey. If, you're, if you want to be sort of uptown and chic, you say Monterey. If you want to say, hey, I'm down and dirty, I'm Salinas. And so that, but he's the pastor there. He's been there for 10 years. Uh, ben has and is a disciple-making pastor. And one day, he and I were sitting on a bench in front of a hotel in St. Louis. It was a beautiful night. And we were about ready to go out to dinner with some of our friends and then go to that little place they serve that great custard. I can't remember what it's called. Andy's? Maybe Andy's Custard or something. Always go to Andy's Custard when you go to Missouri. And so we went out. We were going to, looking forward to all that. And I said, Ben, you know, we've spent a lot of our time today talking about what kind of gospels we're against. Maybe we should do talk about what we're for. And so what came out of that was a book called The Discipleship Gospel and uh, written by myself and Ben. So Ben is now going to take the baton here, and he's going to try to describe what kind of gospel we're talking about. And, sir, so the marker is yours. The lid is in my pocket. Hold on. <laughs> Here's the lid. It's all yours. Awesome. All Thanks. right? Thanks. All right. So... Um... 
C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham, tells a story about a group of top-flight academics in Oxford. They were debating back in C.S. Lewis's day, what's the one thing that distinguishes Christianity from the world religions? And so they're going back and forth having this big old debate for a couple of hours and C.S. Lewis walks into the room and one of the guys says, hey, Jack, what's the one thing that differentiates Christianity from the world's religions? And C.S. Lewis says, well, that's easy. It's grace. I want you to remember that for a moment. Now, when we're talking about what the gospel is, we're talking about King Jesus' kingdom gospel, differentiated from the forgiveness-only gospel, the gospel of the left, the gospel of the right, the consumer gospel, the prosperity gospel, all the other gospels you hear about uh, floating around America. We're talking about Jesus' kingdom gospel. And if you get into Scripture, and I want to point you to two specific passages, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, and Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 34 you're going to see seven elements of Jesus' kingdom gospel. These are elements that Jesus, when he was actually preaching the gospel, these are things that came out of his own mouth. So it's pretty hard to say that they're not elements of the gospel when they're actually coming from Jesus' mouth when it says he is preaching the gospel. So I'm going to run through them very quickly. I've done this presentation the last couple of years. Some of you have heard this before, so I want to develop this because there's an aspect of Jesus' kingdom gospel that's really critical to understand if you're going to understand the wholeness, the fullness, the completeness of it. Because after we wrote this book, we received a lot of criticism about some aspects of it, and I want to get into that with you. So if you read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, and Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 34, you're going to see seven elements. They're right here. You're going to see that when Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God in Mark chapter 1, he announced the kingdom of God has come. Jesus' gospel, first and foremost, is a kingdom gospel. He mentions the kingdom a hundred times throughout his ministry. That's a lot. Then he talks about in Mark chapter 8, he, he unveils, he calls the, the disciples to say, who do you say I am? And, and Peter says, the Christ. And he goes, you've received this revelation from heaven. So Jesus is the Christ. He's God's anointed king. And then he goes into, he begins explaining to them, as soon as that's announced, as soon as the disciples recognize him as the Christ, the king, then then he defines what kind of king he is. He's a crucified king. He's a king that's going to die. So he begins unveiling his death for our sins and his resurrection, which is confirmed I'm going to add one passage of Scripture here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Critical gospel passage that affirms that these three elements are part of the gospel. Okay, so we've got kingdom, Christ, death, resurrection. And then in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins announcing the gospel of the kingdom, it's not enough to hear the gospel to be saved. You have to respond to the gospel to be saved. And he tells us exactly how we're supposed to respond. He says, repent and believe the gospel and follow me. So we've got these three elements of response right here. And as you think about that, it's helpful for me to begin as we're unpacking what the gospel is, to understand that these four elements right here, these are the declarations of the gospel. This is what Matthew Bates, if you're familiar with Matthew Bates, if you're not, you should be. 
Matthew Bates calls the gospel proper. When we talk about what is the gospel, the declarations are the good news. This is the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. Okay? So here we have a summary. I'd say this is a, a, a crucified king. We have a crucified king. But then he makes it very clear to us what our response should be, and that response includes repentance, belief, and following Jesus. Now, if, as you look at these declarations, one of the things that's very rare to hear when you hear preaching of the gospel these days is any mention of the kingdom. You look at any, most gospel tracts, I, I don't see any gospel tracts that actually talk about the kingdom. So here's the question, can you, have, can you preach Jesus' kingdom gospel without mentioning the kingdom? Hmm, I'm not sure. Um, so kingdom is a huge part of, of the declarations, and we've got to understand that if Jesus is the king and it's his kingdom, all these things begin working together. Now, when you start thinking of the declarations, Jesus makes the responses very clear. And there's, there's, they are distinct declarations and responses, but the responses are essential. If you do not repent, believe, and follow Jesus, will you be saved? The answer is no. It's not just enough to hear the gospel, you have to respond to the gospel, you have to respond to the gospel the way Jesus called you to respond to the gospel, which involves repentance, belief, and following Jesus. You'll find that the, this idea of following Jesus is in both Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, he doesn't just download, he doesn't just call us to follow him. In Mark chapter 8, he, he tells us what following him means. It means denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus. That's what it means. So here we have a crucified king calling me to live a crucified life. A life of taking up my cross and following him. A life of denying myself, taking up my cross and following him. So as you think about these, these aspects, let me just add one more dimension to our gospel understanding. We've got our declarations. This is the gospel proper. This is what we announce. This is what we proclaim. It's all about Jesus. But then we call people like Jesus to respond to the gospel, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. And then we have the benefits of the gospel. The benefits um, include, I've, ri- I've written down seven. If you like look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, You'll just see Paul just like, it's that one big long sentence where Paul just can't stop writing about how good God is and how much he's blessed us, how all the benefits of the gospel are coming into focus. And he starts right, but there's, there's not just seven, right? There's like 10,000. I love that song, 10,000 Reasons, right? Because there's probably 10,000 benefits to the gospel or more. But I've just listed seven. So love, God, receiving God's love, receiving God's forgiveness, uh, being justified by God, before him, being adopted as his son or daughter, receiving citizenship in the kingdom, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and receiving the gift of eternal life. Now, the reason I'm adding these in is because it's really important when you're talking about the gospel that you use precise language. Like Bill was talking about, I love this quote, ambiguity is your enemy, specificity is your friend. So how many of you have heard that justification by faith is the heart of the gospel? Anyone? All right. Is it the heart of the gospel? Well, some people think so, but I would, t- I would push you to say, be more precise with your language because justification is a benefit of the gospel. If I'm understanding the Jesus kingdom gospel, what's the heart of the gospel? 
not justification, Jesus. Jesus is the heart of the gospel. It's all about him. It's his kingdom. He's the king. It's his death and it's his resurrection. All right? So when we understand the specificity of what we're talking about, we're going to avoid saying justification is the heart of the gospel. No, because Jesus, that replaces Jesus. Whoa, I don't want to be doing that. Okay, so this helps us have a grid to which uh, to think through with precision the gospel. And just as a reminder, these seven elements, that they're not something that we came up with. If you look at Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 8, these are things that Jesus talked about. They come from two passages, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians 15, that actually are explicitly gospel passages. They say, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus said. Okay? There's not too many passages like that in the scriptures. So you can start pulling all sorts of verses together, but do they say this is a gospel passage? This is what Jesus said was the gospel. So that's really, as you're critically thinking through all this. Now, as you, as you look at that, that outline of Jesus' kingdom gospel, the declarations, the responses, and the benefits. So we write this book and we, and we publish this book, and I'm hoping that people are liking it right? And so then we start getting some emails like people don't like it. Actually, some people really hate it. It wasn't just like the people who liked it liked it, but it, the people who didn't like it, they, they hated it. So what was some of the feedback that you feel like we would have got on presenting this? Works righteousness. Yes. Good. Works salvation. This is works salvation. The other one we heard was this is anti-grace. And so that, you know, I was distressed. I'm like, I'm calling up Bill and I'm saying like, whoa, are you seeing what people are saying about the book? And he's like, he's like, what are they saying? I said, they think that this is work salvation and anti-grace. And Bill goes, yes, we're finally getting somewhere. Hang on a sec. Let's back up. What? <laughs> it, this, what? What this did was it actually drove me back to the Gospels to read through the Gospels again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you know, when I read through all of the Gospels, do you know how many times Jesus is recorded as using the word grace in the Gospels, the four New Testament Gospels? Anyone? Jesus, the word grace did not come out of Jesus' mouth once, anywhere recorded for us in the Gospels, not once. It's actually, he only actually says the word grace once in the entire Bible. That's your homework for tonight. But isn't that surprising? Like you would think if anyone talked about grace, it would have to be Jesus, right? But he doesn't talk about it at all even when he's preaching the gospel, he doesn't even mention it. So you'll notice right here, you don't find grace anywhere here. So what's going on? If Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is a gospel of grace, how could it be a gospel of grace if Jesus doesn't even talk about grace? Doesn't mention it, not even once. It's a really good question that you need to think through because we're very quick to throw out these kinds of accusations this is work salvation. This is anti-grace. But do we really understand how grace works its way into Jesus' kingdom gospel? Do we really know what grace is? 
I'd submit to you that there's a version of grace floating around these days that isn't actually grace. There is this kind of squishy, ill-defined thing that we call grace, but that isn't actually grace. Three characteristics of this thing that we call grace, but isn't actually grace, are number one, it's limited. This thing that we call grace, we limit it to conversion. So when people say, I've been saved by grace, what do they mean? They mean, when I was converted, I received a whole bunch of grace from God. Amen. Awesome. Praise God for that. But that's all they mean. Because they limit in their minds, they're thinking about their conversion experience. I've been saved by grace. I'm limiting it to my conversion. But just think about the expansive way the New Testament talks about the word salvation. Salvation isn't just your conversion. Salvation is past. I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. Salvation is expansive in the New Testament. You can't limit it to conversion. And we shouldn't limit limit our understanding of grace to conversion either. Because what that sets up is the second characteristic of this thing that we call grace, but really isn't. And that is it's passive as it relates to discipleship. We limit grace to conversion, which means we treat it as passive with respect to discipleship. What does grace do in your life after you've been converted? I'm not really sure. I don't really know. Does grace do much? See, we've, we've adopted this idea that grace really doesn't do much for us after conversion. It's very passive. So we've got this limited understanding of what grace is, this passive understanding of what grace is, and you'll hear it around the church, but there's also this idea that grace is lenient. Non-Christians don't talk about grace. They don't know what grace is. Christians talk about grace all the time. But just think about how they use it. Listen, when people use the word grace, listen to how they use it. They'll use it leniently to get away with stuff. So when I commit to having a piece of paper written out, you know, uh, uh, an idea written out on a piece of paper, here's my one-page submission, I'm going to get that to you at uh, 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and now it's 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and I'm calling you up and saying, hey, can you give me a grace period, right? What is that? I'm late. I didn't fulfill my commitment, so I'm going to ask for a grace period. I'm going to ask for leniency, right? When I hurt your feelings or I sin against you, I come and I've got this embedded idea that all I have to do is come to you and just, will you please give me grace? And you're almost obligated to give it to me. Even though I haven't really said sorry, even though I really haven't repented of hurting you, even though we haven't really fixed it up, I'm asking you to give me grace. And it's almost like you're obligated because you know grace is this huge, amazing thing to give it to me because that's what Christians are supposed to do. So grace becomes this lenient thing, and it actually becomes an excuse for disobedience. So catch this. Jesus, the king, says, go make disciples of all nations. Do you have to do that? No, I'm saved by grace. And so whether we think we're using it as an excuse for disobedience, we actually use it as an excuse for disobedience. How much of the church is actually seeking to make disciples of all nations right now? I heard this morning, 7% actually are in America. 7% of churches are making disciples. 
So how in the world do the other 93% of churches justify their disobedience? Because they think they're saved by grace. They don't have to be obedient to the Great Commission. See, this is where this goes. And so what we're talking about is not grace, but it's actually ungrace. It's not grace. And if you try to put, force this limited, passive, lenient version of grace into Jesus' kingdom gospel, it won't fit. It doesn't fit. And it actually will cause you, when you, you hear Jesus' kingdom gospel, it'll actually cause you to accuse those preaching Jesus' kingdom gospel of being work salvation experts and being of anti-grace. Because this version of grace that we've adopted by osmosis doesn't fit the grace of the gospel. Now, here's, here's three characteristics. If we were to, I'm going to draw a box around, I'll just tell you a quick story. Last time I was in this room and I was, I was sharing all this stuff, um, and because I'm feeling some tension in the room right now. Last time I was sharing all this stuff, right here, after I was sharing all this stuff, uh, a guy got right up in my face. Like, it, I, like he was really, really mad. And so I was like this far away from this guy because he was so upset with what I was saying. This is work salvation. And uh, so I just think it's, a, you know, this is the first time I've been in this room since then. So it's like I nearly got a fight right here last time, <laughs> right? You, so you're going to have to back off just a little bit. <laughs> Um, as you think through these three aspects of the gospel, when you understand the, the true, I'm going to call it the true grace of God, okay, you'll see that grace, it's not passive at all. Grace initiates. Did we do anything that would make Jesus come into this world, die on the cross for our sins and make salvation an offer for everyone who believes. We didn't do anything. Jesus did that first. He initiated all of that all by himself. He did it because he loves us. That is an expression of his initiating grace. Is grace passive in that regard? Not at all. It's initiating. It's very active. When we receive all these benefits, is grace passive? Not at all. We're receiving all these benefits, but grace is blessing. Are you seeing the verbs here? It's initiating and it's blessing. The area of the gospel that gets a little bit complicated and mysterious is the responses. Okay? This, this area is very clear because God is initiating all of this. This area is very clear because God is just blessing us with all these benefits. This area is a little bit unclear or a little mysterious because God is involved, I would submit to you, and we are involved. If you think that you can repent, believe, and follow Jesus in your own strength, I think you're mistaken. I don't think you can repent, believe, and follow Jesus in your own strength at all. But I don't think it's all of God either. I think there is this beautiful symmetry between grace and faith that's going on in these responses to the point where we see grace empowering. Grace initiates, grace empowers, and grace blesses. So can I, re 
Can I repent without grace? I can't. I can only repent by grace. Can I believe without grace? No, I can't. I can only believe by grace. Can I follow Jesus without grace? No, I can't. So when you, when you see how grace absolutely imbues the entire entirety of the gospel, you understand and now you can declare with confidence salvation truly is by grace. The whole thing, the declarations, the responses, and all the benefits, all of it, my whole life now is empowered, initiated, blessed by God through His grace. So I've got this full, full understanding of grace. Now I'm going to, so, so when I have this box here, what I'm saying is it really becomes clear when you look at the responses, because in the responses, it's not just God giving to me. Now it's God giving to me, empowering me to respond and live the way he's calling me to live. So, so the, the important thing is right here. So I'm repenting by grace, believing by grace and following by grace. And how do I continue to follow Jesus you know, for the rest of my life? Is it in my own strength? No, it's by grace. So over here, we have three characteristics of what I'm going to call true grace. That's what um, Peter calls it in 1 Peter chapter 5, I think. So number one, the first characteristic of true grace that we see in the scriptures is empowerment. Grace empowers. Okay, one of the, the, the most powerful discipleship verses or passages in the scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, that's the one that starts talking about the four generations of discipleship, all right? Paul says to Timothy, I want you, so it's coming from Paul and it's transferring to Timothy and Timothy's being called to pass it on to faithful men who are going to uh, pass it on to others, four generations of discipleship. So here we've got this amazingly powerful discipleship verse, verse 2. But if you look back to verse 1, verse 1 says, Timothy, first be strengthened by the grace of God. Be strengthened by the grace of God. So here we, we are seeing an example of God's empowerment by grace. Can you make disciples accept in, in any other way except by grace? You can't. If you do, it ends up being... Um, so two examples of ungrace in the Bible. Now, the first one is Corinthians. They use grace as a license for sin. They were just like, we're going to do whatever we want. We're saved by grace, whatever, right? So Corinthians is a great example of license. I'm going to do whatever I want. This is what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning so that, may, so that grace may increase? Not at all. But that's what the, the Corinthians were doing. Another biblical example of ungrace on the other side of the spectrum is Galatians. The Galatian had twisted God's grace. They had made it into something that grace is not that supported their legalism, all right? So Corinthians were twisting grace into license. Galatians were twisting grace into legalism. And Paul vehemently addresses both because he, he's understanding the true grace of God and that grace is empowerment. And that's why he's calling Timothy to be strengthened by grace so he can do the work of discipleship. Number two, 
The second characteristic that's helpful to think through when you think about true grace is that the, the most beautiful expression of God's grace in our lives is the Holy Spirit. So Paul, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, at the end of like the most amazing spirit-filled sermon, the very first sermon that he really preaches after the Holy Spirit's come upon him and dwelling in him, he preaches this amazing sermon and then he says, even you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's grace? Grace is a gift. So when we talk about, you know, we're saved by grace, whenever you look at the word grace, you can almost every time insert the word Holy Spirit and it will work, all right? So how, do we, how are we empowered by grace? Well, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. So as we're thinking about what does it mean to not only be saved by grace in the old school way of thinking about it, but how do we live by grace? Well, it's the same as living in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. It is God's expression of his empowerment for this new life that we're called to live. So Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I think, says, You have been given everything you need. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Is there anything that you do not have for your life and godliness? Is there, so one way to say this is, does Jesus ever command you to do anything he doesn't also empower you to do? Every single command of Jesus, he promises to empower you to be obedient. Now, that doesn't mean we always will obey him because sin is still really strong in our lives. But why don't we obey Jesus as Christians? Basically, because we don't want to. Because we can't pin our disobedience on Jesus or the Holy Spirit or on God holding something back from us. Because 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, his divine power has given us his divine power, empowerment has given us everything we need for life and godliness. What does Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 say? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Is God holding out on us at all? No. He has filled us with the abundance, 10,000 blessings. He has given us every, everything we need to live this Christian life. So Holy Spirit is, a, is the, a beautiful expression of God's empowering grace in our lives. And then you get to passages, and this is just kind of underscoring the point that I just made, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, he says, if, if you're in Christ, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And don't you know it? The Holy Spirit is filled with the power of Jesus' resurrection. You are indwelt with the power of Christ's resurrection. So how powerful is that? So if I'm, if I'm really understanding who I am in Christ and I'm understanding who Jesus is, how much he is, that he's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and that he will empower me to do everything he's calling me to do, then I just need to trust him and begin living out the grace of God in my life. Understanding who I am in him, that I am forgiven, that I am loved, that I am adopted into his family, that I am a citizen of heaven and allow that amazing grace, God, how could you be so good to begin empowering the rest of this Christian life? So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in this. I'm going to leave you with two um, just quotes 
as I finish up, two things that we talk a lot about in our church. Grace is not an excuse for disobedience. It's God's empowerment for obedience. If you can think through that, it will change your whole perspective on what grace really is because I never, not once, have found grace to be an excuse for disobedience in the Christian life. But if you start listening very carefully how people talk about grace, it's often used as lenience. The other one is Christ always. Christ, uh, what is it? Everything Christ calls you to do, he has also promised to empower you to do. Everything Christ calls you to do, he has also promised to empower you to do. So when I start understanding these things and I start understanding the importance of obedience, then I look at the Great, com- the great Commission and it really becomes great because, because it becomes his final command, the last thing he calls the church to do. And then I go, okay, because I'm saved by grace, now I want to make disciples because I love Jesus so much. He has blessed me and he's going to empower me to do it. So I'm not having to do this in my own strength. He's going to empower me to do it. So now it's, a, it's a, an expression of my love for him making disciples, not this heavy weight and burden that I have to do in my own strength. So we've got a few well, thank minutes. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you, and, Bill. Um, let's give him a round of applause. Great, oper- great presentation. Well, there's, about, uh, there's two or three things we want to do right now as we close. Uh, one is the way you can respond to this. One of the ways you can do it is you can attack Ben afterwards during the break. Okay, that's one response. Another response would be that you might want to pick up a copy of the book, The Discipleship Gospel. Uh, we also, if you uh, are interested in becoming a part of the Bonhoeffer Project, we'd like for you to go on our website, thebonhoefferproject.com, and there you can just make application. And what will happen is that we'll have someone call you and talk with you uh, and just consider, talk with you about it. Or you can talk with any of our uh, leaders who uh, we have the three gentlemen in the back on this side. If you turn around, you can see them. Um, evil, see no evil, and evil. Okay, no, no actually, th- these are... Uh, Matt Kearns, who is a pastor in Missouri. Uh, Denny Heiberg, who was a pastor for many, many years and now uh, just essentially works with us and uh, does other work around the world. And then Sandy Mason, who is pastor of a Bible church in Phoenix, Arizona. All three of them are leaders in the Bonhoeffer movement and can answer questions for you. Uh, Cindy Perkins over here can answer questions as well on this side. Uh, another thing we'd like for you to do is you saw that podcast. Well, that's new this week. We just It's just now been premiered this week. And I have to admit, I'm having a lot of fun and learning a lot of things. We've done about 14 programs now. And I think we've, I learned this word dropped. Uh, that means you let it, you released it. And uh, there's like four, I think four or five now. And you can go on our website and actually listen to it, sample it, and so on. But we'd like for you to subscribe. You know, it's all about, I guess, downloads. I, I don't know much about it other than that. But we're trying to engage the culture. You know, one of the things that I have noticed that in the last 50 years, and I have actually been an adult for the last 50 years, 
And one of the things that I have discovered is that we've lost the culture and that the culture is toxic. And so what is our response to that in the area of religion, in the area of culture, in the area of politics? And we cover all of those kinds of things. It's irreverent at times. I'm sure you'll disagree with some of it. Uh, it's, uh, there's, sometimes there's nice, healthy arguments, give and take. But uh, essentially, uh, I think we're looking for the Christian response. You know, what is it that we can do? Uh, and then uh, we also wanted to be able to um, give away the books. So where are we on that? Oh, okay, Matt. Come on up, Matt. Uh, I'll draw them and hand them to you. Wait, no, I actually have them. I have the microphone. Oh, I mean, these are cards. They're not little. Okay, I got to shuffle the cards. Wait a minute, shuffle the deck. Okay, I think I got two or three here. One. Will Brubacher. Will. Come on up. Uh, what, what's he get? A handshake? No. What? Oh. Come on. You're slow, man. Come on. Okay. What, what would you like? Uh, Mark Laxton. Hey, Mark. Where's Mark? Right there. Okay. And one more? Oh, several more. Joe Loney from Living Hope Baptist Church. Okay, he's coming. Okay. Paula Franklin. Where's Paula? Right down here. Come on, you guys. That's pretty weak. Okay, come on, Paula. And uh, who else? Is that it? that it for this point? Oh, two more. Oh, he probably has have a cardio event trying to pull. Okay, uh, Phil Harden. There, Phil. Is this the last card? The last card. Okay, remember the great Karnak? Probably not. Jerry Franklin. Oh. Yeah, the, you know, your cards probably stuck together, didn't they? Yeah, okay, got it. All right. Uh, have I forgotten anything? Okay. Well, uh, we'll be hanging around here during the break until we do the next one. And what is the next one? Who's doing what in the next one, please? Help the man. In 15 minutes, we're going to have what? The Clarity Gap. And who's going to be doing that? Sandy, Denny, and me. All right. Sandy and Denny will tell me what I'm doing in a minute. All right. Thank you for coming. Enjoy. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to download the Bonhoeffer Project Founders book and download the Discipleship Gospel Primer by Bill Hole and Ben Sobels. Go to discipleship.org ebooks and look for the Discipleship Gospel Primer. Thanks for listening.